and welcome to another episode of the Life After Cardiac Arrest podcast with me, your host, Paul Swindell. Today I'm speaking with Christian Webb, who is a cardiac physiologist and a CEO of Lois Medical. Hello, Christian, and welcome. Hi, Paul, uh, and thanks you for having me. I'm very well, thank you. Thanks for having me on your uh, podcast. Um, I've listened to many of the other episodes, and uh, hopefully I can entertain your listeners as much as I've been entertained by some of the guests you've had before me. <laughs> well, thanks for saying that. It's good to hear that someone's listening anyway. <laughs> <laughs> it might just be me, but uh, I've enjoyed them. Today's uh, episode is a little bit different from some of the other ones that I've done. There's, there's a sort of a commercial aspect to this, and we're going to be talking about a, a product that Christian's company is coming up with, which is for ICD patients, essentially. But before we do that, I'd like if you could introduce yourself, because people may have seen you on some of the internet forums or even some of the work that you've produced, but perhaps you could sort of contextualise what we're going to talk about by giving us your background. Yeah, of course. Some of you may have seen me previously doing different things on social media, on different forums, or if you are a physician or you're, you're a medic, you might have seen me doing some presentations on a website called Med Mastery. So for probably 10 years now, I've been doing different bits and pieces online and digitally about information regarding ICDs or pacemakers, looking to put some good information out there for patients and physicians around devices. And really, that's come a long way from how it was when I first started, um, mostly because when I first started, I was producing content under the synonym Carl Robinson. So you might also have seen some books or information by somebody called Carl Robinson. That is actually myself. And what I'll do is as we go through the podcast, I'll explain why I started off with a pen name, as it were, and actually where I am now providing this kind of information for patients and how that has now transpired in a product for ICD patients and trying to help ICD patients, uh, you know, live life to their full after what is often a very traumatic experience that they've been through. So if we could go back to the, to the start, your cardiac part of your career, could you tell me about how you got into that and what is a cardiac physiologist? Yeah, of course. I guess like a lot of people growing up and even into my early 20s, I never really found something that I wanted to do. So I had, you know, diverse range of jobs whilst I was finding my feet, I guess. And then something happened and I don't know if it has guided my career, but it always seems quite relevant was that I was uh, with a previous partner in a very small hamlet near Farnham. And we were to be babysitting some of the local kids whilst many of the other adults went to the local pub for a night out. Now, as we were waiting for some of the people to come around, someone frantically knocked on the door and we were rushed over to the house saying that, you know, a guy, uh, a friend of, the, of um, my ex-girlfriend's family had collapsed. So I went over there and he'd actually had a heart attack, had a cardiac arrest. And, you know, it was myself and his wife that were giving a CPR and, and trying to save his life. Now, unfortunately, we weren't able to save his life and he did die. But I think that really left its stamp on me, whether it was consciously or subconsciously. So fast forward a couple of years, I came across this job known as a cardiac physiologist online when I was looking for what to do with my, my life, I guess. And it just seemed to resonate with me. And I, I became immediately fascinated with the heart. I love the, the, 
you know, how functional it is, how logical it is. It makes sense, the kind of beautiful simplicity of its function. And uh, I really became obsessed with it. And as soon as I found this job, I decided that's what I wanted to do. I took some time out and did some work experience and was fortunate enough to be offered a job eventually at the Royal Surrey County Hospital, uh, where I did my training. It's a fascinating story, a bit of a, a sort of a, a sad introduction to it, really. But um, at, at the point when you did CPR, how, how old were you and had you had any previous training? I think that's a good point. I mean, I didn't want to start off on a sad foot, and I'm sure that we can come on to more positive things, but it, it was really poignant. At the time, I didn't have training. And I remember having some very strange thoughts whilst I was going through this experience, which was firstly, regret that I didn't have any training. And I was, I mean, I was holding, if you imagine, one of those telephones, a wireless telephone under my, between my shoulder and my ear, so that I could give the hands on CPR. And I just remember it being very difficult. And just this desire or you know this wishful thinking that the emergency paramedic would get there quickly um, because I needed that reassurance that what I was doing was correct because even though I was being spoken through it having never done it or having having had very little formal training so you know the kind of training that you get at school maybe 10 years before I felt myself vulnerable which was you know a very strange situation but when the emergency paramedic did get there Obviously, he had other things to do as well. We were we then became a team. He was a quick responder on a bike, so it was just one one of them. And I continued to do the CPR with him. And I just remember him saying, what you're doing is perfect. And I remember that being a real relief, a credit to the person that was instructing me on the phone. Uh, but when I say a relief, it wasn't from a selfish point of view, like I was looking after myself, but it was a relief that I was doing CPR in a way that was giving the gentleman the the best chance of survival that he had. And it was more relief for him that he had every chance to survive that he had at that, you know, at that time. Absolutely. I mean, it's a really important point, really, because I think a lot of people who perhaps do CPR, not on a loved one, maybe if it's on a bystander, as soon as the the patient's whipped away in the ambulance, that's the last they hear of it. And they don't know the outcome of what happened. They don't know whether they were doing CPR okay or not. There's a meme, isn't there? It's about CPR is like sex. It, any CPR is better than no CPR, <laughs> yeah. which is you know pretty much true. As long as someone steps in and intervenes and does the best they can, then I don't think they can really be faulted. But yeah, so it's a traumatic situation, and that's one of the things I hope that can be improved in the future is is maybe even just a debrief for for anyone who goes through that experience of doing CPR or even just assisting in any way whether it be with the AED or whatever because it, it is a, a traumatic scenario to be involved in it was it was and um it didn't leave actually such a traumatic stamp on me probably because I was quite detached from the person, you know, it wasn't a relative of mine. It wasn't a close friend of mine. And maybe as well, it was just the scenario itself was so hard for me to take in at the time that it might have been a defense mechanism, but it was it was a surreal experience. And I don't think I ever processed it. And I, I never felt that I had to cope with anything. Uh, it was fine, actually. I didn't kind of feel anything. I think that was just because I didn't understand the experience, not because I took the experience lightly. How old were you at the time? Uh, so I was in my early 20s. 
you know, so you know, adult enough to have been through a few things in my life that probably prepared me for it as well. Uh, but one thing I do say, being a trained uh, professional, so having lots of CPR experience and formal training, whenever I talk about my my job, you know, my profession, my training, people always often joke you know well that's that's fine you know that's good for me if anything happens you know it's good that you're here in the room and I'm sure other doctors hear this and and other healthcare professionals but I always joke well yeah but what if anything happens to me so I uh, you know I'm an advocate for other people getting really good CPR training because you never know when you're going to need it and I'm sure you'd have discussed this countless times with people before is that you know the chances are that if you are performing CPR unfortunately it's going to be on someone you care about so you want to know uh, that what you're doing is, you know, good CPR. And so it's definitely worth getting the training. And I know there's lots of people banging that drums, but if you are listening, you haven't got the training, you know, organize yourself some training because you might be grateful you did one day. Exactly. So going back to cardiac physiologist, what is a cardiac physiologist? <laughs> and what, what, do you, what do you know that another physician doesn't? So, I mean, that's a really good question. I didn't know what a cardiac physiologist was or even that one existed before I found the job online. And I think a lot of people don't really know that that job exists or what it does, whereas other healthcare professionals that aren't doctors are more well-known, things like physiotherapists or radiographers. So a cardiac physiologist, in the simplest terms, is somebody who's specialised in the diagnostics of the heart, but to a certain extent, doesn't act upon it. So we could look at different testing, different results, interpret them to really understand the physiology or the pathophysiology, so something going wrong with a a person's natural processes, and write a report up and present that to a physician. It would subsequently be the physician themselves that would either decide to not act on it or act upon it. So whether that's prescriber therapy you know, order another examination. The buck really stops with the physician, but we have the expertise in interpreting results, understanding rhythms, and then supporting a whole host of other procedures, you know, working in cath labs and then running clinics as well. Who would be those other physicians? That we work with, yes. So you're in a team, really. And if you think about a cath lab is probably a really great example to understand how the team fits together. So you, you might have the doctor, the physician, that he'll be working directly on the patient, performing any intervention. So let's say somebody's had a sudden cardiac arrest. They may want to bring them in to see whether the underlying cause is a heart attack, so a blocked artery. They might come to the cath lab. It would be the physician who's charged with the intervention and actually going in using catheters to open up that blockage. Supporting them might be a cardiac nurse who will be really involved in that procedure as well, very hands-on, you know, administering different medications. And then you'll have other people in a room, a radiographer, be looking after the imaging, making sure that we can see the heart's getting the right angle of the heart because actually what people don't know is that depending on which angle you kind of photograph a heart, if you like, you can see different blood vessels and actually see whether they're blocked much better than from certain angles. So you have someone driving the camera around the heart, um, the radiographer, to make sure that we can see exactly what's going on. And then you have a physiologist. So quite often in a cath lab, 
uh, role. We're, we're monitoring the heart rhythm, the rate, the blood pressure. We're also assisting, you know, getting different bits of kit off the shelf, opening it, providing it for the nurse. So it's a real team effort between all of these people. And I always think the cath lab is probably the best example of that teamwork coming together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it does sound very much like that. And also you've got a, perhaps a, a little bit more of a, a boring day-to-day job where you're doing it in a clinic. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, so that that's really important to remember, I guess. So cardiac physiologists can... I mean, there are some cardiac physiologists that are skilled across the board, but there's subspecialties, if you like. So some go into what we would call echo, which is imaging. So they're very good at echocardiograms and, you know, the 3D imaging of the heart and interpreting those results. Others will go into devices, and that normally also includes electrophysiology, so what we call EP. Myself, I went into devices, so I became a pacemaker and ICD specialist. Now, what that means is that if you think there's many different manufacturers that make devices, so there's five real key players in the UK, especially and globally, in essence. Now, they they produce different devices for different heart conditions with different software, different algorithms and different ways of working. They'll have different hardware with different you know ways to use that hardware so there's a lot to learn so for a physician to be an expert in everything they do with their day job of being a cardiologist and then having to really be extremely clued up on those you know there's the nuances between the manufacturers is very difficult so the role of the device specialist physiologist in my eyes at least some people might disagree with this is to really know the intricacies of those devices, the software that goes with it, and be the experts in that field. And the physicians really lean on their physiologists to um, guide them about the different devices, the software, the settings in particular, um, to help them and to supplement their role. You you mentioned the the five players. Could you just sort of recap who they are? Yeah, so uh, it's a good test because I've not been a cardiac physiologist for a couple of years now uh, or a practicing one. So Medtronic, Boston Scientific, Abbott, who acquired St. Jude, if anyone's got a St. Jude device, Biotronic, and Microport, who acquired Levanova. So there's your five do the devices vary in price that much or are they all relatively the same? They do. And the NHS has taken steps to ensure that these companies are more price sensitive in their offerings. So the, the differences in price between the equipment is narrowing. So what's more different is a simple pacemaker from a complex ICD. There's a big price gap there. But one ICD from Medtronic to an ICD from Boston Scientific, if it's doing essentially the same thing, the price point's going to be comparable. Yeah. Which is good because we want that competition to drive down price so that, you know, we can all get good healthcare. Mm -hmm. Can you give a sort of a rough uh, price on some of those devices? Like you said, the the pacemaker and then... uh, I don't know. I know. You know, it's come down a lot. I've not worked for a couple of years, but anywhere from, I mean, a pacemaker, anywhere from fifteen hundred pound for the most simple one, and you know, a few years ago up to twelve, thirteen thousand pound for a complex CRTD device. 
that may have come down and I, you know it always depends how much bulk ordering you're doing but it used to be even more than that so the price has come down and I didn't actually get involved with the purchasing of devices when I was working in the NHS thankfully so those, those are estimates someone uh, you know feel free to correct me and, and let me know but they're in that ballpark for sure mm-hmm. it's just that occasionally I see sort of uh, the bills that some of our American friends receive after their implants and they're like silly number of zeros on them and of course and they're being charged remember they're being charged for the 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 use of the cath lab the staff the medications and you know everything else that comes with that device and you get that in the nhs as well so that's the cost of the device the hardware that the nhs is uh, you know paying the manufacturer but the actual cost of the procedure is much more and i I wouldn't want to guess a number because i'd get that totally wrong <laughs> so with your day-to-day job when you were working as a cardiac physiologist what what were you doing with patients in the clinic say yeah i i think i had a, a really good grounding when i became a cardiac physiologist so i was given my opportunity by a lady called audrey kemp who was the head of the devices department at the royal surrey at the time that i joined and she was very compassionate so when i consider my role as a cardiac physiologist a large part of that time is in clinics so if you do have a device i know many people listening to this podcast will have an icd the people that you go in and see who interrogate your device put a header over the top adjust the settings and you know look to see if anything's happened with your heart rhythm over the last six months that's what we do on a day-to-day basis i mentioned audrey because she was very hands-on with my training and she was always very sensitive and very compassionate to the patient and to the person essentially that you're seeing and that's always sat with me so I guess from a day-to-day point of view you might argue that you are you know following up devices themselves and we often think of it like that but really you are seeing these people that have their health conditions and of course you're checking on their device and their health of their device but a lot of the time, it's almost like a counselling session as well. They want to come in and talk about the different issues that they've had, the different concerns that they have. So in a clinic, you are looking after their device, but you're also looking after the psychological well-being of that person as well. And I, you know, I thank Audrey Kemp for kind of grounding me in that, and that's something that's always stayed with me, and that's something that I've passed on to other people that I've trained. Uh-huh. I think you're very... Uh... Why is there? Because it's, it's, I think it's a, a thing that's uh, missed with having these devices implanted. You know, I think maybe some people think it's an easy fix to a, a potential problem, but there is a there are ramifications of having a device inside you and becoming essentially a cyborg, which perhaps is is missed a little bit. Yeah, of course, and the, you know the people that you see with devices teach you that as well. And I was never. I could never fail to be surprised at the diverse nature of how people respond to having a cardiac device. And really, it doesn't matter on whether that cardiac device is a very simple pacemaker or something we call a CRTD, which is probably as complex a device as you can still get, which is for heart failure and has the the ability to defibrillate as well. It doesn't really matter what device they've got. It can really affect people in different ways. Some people with a very simple pacemaker can be quite debilitated um, by that implant. 
And other people with a very complex device can just get on with life as if nothing's happened. So it's really dependent on the person. And the thing that I always remember is you should never, ever underestimate the power of words, especially when you're dealing with vulnerable people. So it's a real minefield, really, when you're disseminating information or providing information to that person to make sure you deliver it in the best possible way because you can give to some people 99% of your session can be all good news everything's fantastic but if you run one test and you say oh I'm just going to do that test again that and you don't explain why and you don't they can take that uncertainty away and really worry that something's wrong with their device you have to make sure they leave the room um at worst in the same psychological state as when they came in but hopefully in a better a better position Mm -hmm. i mean i i i know from my personal experience i've had my device coming up for six years now i know definitely the first couple of years were very uh not nervous of it but wary of it obviously there was the uh the physical discomfort for um probably the first year or 18 months I would say I had a slightly unusual situation that the lead caused an occlusion in my vein that came out of my arm and caused uh, me a number of problems for probably six nine months and that took a while not just physically but also psychologically to uh, get over that because there were worrying symptoms that I had where my arm was swelling up and it was going numb and things like that but in time, that has dissipated in the actual symptoms, but also the, the the psychological aspect in it. In that I, because I haven't been shocked, I guess I don't really notice my device very much anymore. <laughs> would, would that be sort of a usual story of of a patient? Yeah, and I think there's a couple of things to mention. There is that you know when we talk about psychology of a patient, I notice as a general trend, and I'm not a psychologist, I should probably (laughs) point out up front, but just anecdotally, I notice as a trend that patients that see their ICD as a positive tend to do much better, I would say, than patients that see it as a negative. Now, that seems like an obvious statement, but when you Obviously, yourself, I, I, I listened to your earlier podcast. I remember you said that your life after your ICD was a roller coaster. Now, part of that is probably the device implant itself as well. And like you mentioned with the problems you had, if these devices always went in seamlessly without complication, it'd be much easier for patients to take away the benefits that those devices provide and not think about the negatives and sometimes that takes some getting over. So if you do have an implant, you know, a complication like yourself or a lead can quite often displace and you have to have a follow-up surgery, then that quite often gets the patient starting to feel a bit negative about their device. And so we do try and avoid that as much as we can. And hopefully if things all go well, it normally settles down and it's a trend. You definitely see that as time passes, people have a better relationship with their ICD. Um, they just get more comfortable with it. They start to see it as a positive and not as a, a marker of a difficult time in their life, which they can quite often see it as as well. And time, they do say heals all wounds, but for most people, the more time that passes following an ICD implant, the more they forget about it and the more they kind of just live their life as they did beforehand, um, you know, other symptoms allowing. I, I don't know if that does mirror or kind of, explain your experience as well paul mm-hmm. yeah, yeah well, i i i've said 
time as a healer. I mean, for me, having a, uh, a cardiac arrest first, I think the, the issues created by that, as well as the ICD, were sort of all mixed up as one, as far as I'm concerned. And having the issues that I did with the ICD just added a load more yeah. unanswered questions, basically, to why I had a cardiac arrest in the first place. So, yeah, it's it's all been a bit, as as you mentioned, a roller coaster in terms of in terms of it all. And also, people, the reason that why somebody has an ICD quite often factors. So, if you've had a heart attack and you, you've got a good explanation as to why it's there that might help you accept it more than somebody like yourself who had an idiopathic uh, sudden cardiac arrest when you say heart attack would an, would a heart attack patient normally have an icd because i i generally thought they not necessarily but it depends on the level of damage that their heart muscle itself has gone through so quite often well, in, I say quite often, in some circumstances, somebody that comes in with a heart attack will meet criteria for an ICD placement afterwards. So it's to do with the amount of ejection fraction that they've got left. They might have a cardiac MRI. They'll assess the quality of the heart muscle itself. And there's a criteria if the heart muscle doesn't reach or does reach that criteria, then they can have an ICD put in place so it's not all the time because some people have a heart attack and they're fortunate enough to get immediate uh, intervention which leaves their heart muscle in very good conditions they don't have to have an icd some people come in with all kinds of you know cardiac problems ultimately find out that their muscle reaches that criteria to have a device and they will get one so if you do have a good story a good reason as to why you've got one then it makes a bit more sense and sometimes people like yourself that don't have don't have that reason might find it more difficult but like I say it's very I mean I guess that sentence probably may not come across the best but it's all down to the individual so you know some people might think that actually having been through a sudden cardiac arrest itself will help you adopt the ICD into your life because you know the benefit of what it can do for you whereas if you haven't had a sudden cardiac arrest you've never kind of had that traumatic experience which would help that benefit be more tangible does that make sense oh yeah yeah yeah, absolutely i mean i, I was when they ask you when you're in hospital do you want it you're in a bit of a daze and a confused state anyway but you know on, on reflection coming months afterwards i was pleased that it was although it had its own issues uh i was pleased that i had this sort of security blanket or insurance policy on hand basically it probably gave my wife and my family comfort as well because they couldn't always be there with me and that's true for many people absolutely and i think that so the takeaway message is that it doesn't really matter what heart condition you've had that's ultimately led you to have a cardiac device it doesn't matter what cardiac device you've got your response psychologically to that device is all down to the person, down to the individual. And it's a full range. And if, you know, if somebody's listening to this and they are struggling psychologically, you know, they're not alone and they shouldn't be hard on themselves because it's very normal. And, you know, and the other end of the spectrum, if somebody's got a device and they're doing extremely well with it, then great. And I would encourage them to share their kind of outlook and ethos and approach to life to those other people and try and help them uh, come to grips with things and come to terms with things. Absolutely. Why did you move on, decide to move on? Because you worked there for a number of years, didn't you? 
Yeah, I did. So I worked in the NHS for seven years. And at the end of that seven years, I was head of the department, as it were, or joint head. And the lady actually at the time that was the other joint head was off. So I was in Frimley Park Hospital, really looking after the devices department and the physiologist there. And I mean, I've never shared this outside with anyone else, but there was a moment when I was in a cath lab and there was a, a gentleman had come in with a heart attack and, you know, I sat in the control room as us physiologists sit and watching the, the heart rhythm and this heart, this gentleman was having a heart attack and he actually went into ventricular fibrillation, so a cardiac arrest. I got up uh, and our role at that point really is to look after the rhythm. So as a physiologist, you're straight on over to the defibrillator to, you know, charge it up and deliver the therapy to treat that cardiac arrest. So I jumped up, I went into the room, you know, successfully shot the patient back into sinus rhythm, so a healthy rhythm. And then I went and sat back down and I guess I just didn't, and I hadn't felt any almost adrenaline to it. It become very robotic. And I just had a thought to myself at this time that maybe it's time for me to look at other other jobs, other interests, other opportunities, if that if I'm not still getting a level of, you know, adrenaline from something as important as that, then it might be time for me to, to you know, seek out ventures elsewhere. Uh, so I did. I just thought that maybe there's other things that I could do that could help many as opposed to help the individual elsewhere. You could say, on the other hand, though, that the lack of adrenaline rush is a sign of your professionalism in that your your training's working well because you don't necessarily want that rush, do you, in, in that sort of situation? Because I've seen quite a few sort of scenarios now on captured on film. I always marvel at the uh, the level of calmness in, in you guys and ambulance workers and surgeons and what have you. And you, you need to be in that sort of state rather than sort of not panicking but all hyped up don't you and I think that's the point I think well I agree but I feel that a certain level of anxiety and adrenaline helps you perform better I think that's true but it's definitely true that people in a room are calm I mean as a physiologist I definitely always admired the cardiologists themselves because how they're able to perform certain, you know, very fiddly, very dexterous uh, skills under immense stress never failed to amaze me. From my role, I remember being in the cath lab for the first time, seeing, you know, it wasn't even the the first time that you're working as a healthcare professional and something, you know, goes wrong, uh, if you want to think of it like that. And the adrenaline rush is there and, it can help, but it can hinder as well. But definitely over time, your experience does help you keep calm. And that's something that stayed with me in everything I do now is I think that the NHS, my work I did at the NHS has really prepared me to make decisions, but more importantly, decisive decisions and, and go with them um, under a lot of stress, but in a small amount of time as well. And you know, I don't think I'll ever lo- lose that. I just felt that you need a little bit of a, Maybe I felt at that point the job wasn't doing it for me anymore for a, from a selfish point of view, and so maybe I should should look elsewhere. But I agree the calmness is part of experience and it does help you to make better decisions and you know get good health outcomes 
four people, but you know, there's plenty of other people that can go and do the, the same thing. You know, well, probably better than I could. So I just decided to look elsewhere. I guess personal preference. Okay, so what was it you you did next? I think you touched on it at the beginning of the uh, episode, didn't you? Yeah, well, I I mean, I guess I've got a slightly different background as a cardiac physiologist in that I went into the digital world um, and creating content online all the time that I was working within the NHS. I was very fortunate the the NHS supported it and actually recognised it with, you know, a, a local award, which was really nice. But when I was... Early on in my career, I had a patient come and see me with a, you know, a question about their pacemaker, and we're not, you know, we're we're not all all knowing <laughs> about these devices. We know as much as we can, but that patient left the room, and I had to Google his question. Uh, I'm not afraid to admit. And as I Googled his question, I came across a website that it was actually Yahoo Answers, I think it was called. Uh, you know, it's not moderated, so it's not a criticism of the platform. But someone else was asking a similar question about pacemakers, but the answer was very worrying. And then I started to read other answers. And I'll give you an example. There was a young lady that had asked about her grandmother having a pacemaker and she was worried about it. And she said, what happens if the, you know, if, if, you know, she, when she's very old and she does eventually die, you know, what happens to the pacemaker? And there was kind of all this worrying misinformation about what the pacemaker would do and how it prolonged the life which was very false and it really energized me and activated me to do something about it and really correct the balance of poor information online with better information online and this is I mean this is 10 years ago now so I did so I started to write a website just giving patient information it started off life called the PAD, which was an acronym for the heart electrophysiology pacemakers and defibrillators and it was, you know, it was well received. Patients used to go on there, just had information about, you know, what upper rate limit was, what your base rate was, how pacemakers worked, you know, where the leads went. And it really helped patients understand the devices because it was just written in very simple language. I like simple language and I was able to convey that to patients. So in the background to my career in the NHS, I was also developing this career, I guess, in content and digital and marketing. And I'd ended up being a digital consultant for Medtronic. So I went to work for them on a more of a consistent basis. And I was creating content for their website and helping their doctors improve their professional profiles online. And I eventually decided that I'm going to go into industry full time. So I wanted to get some experience working with one of those five manufacturers that I mentioned at the beginning. And it was actually Levanova, so the company that's been taken over by Microport now. And I went to work for them, supporting implants all over the country. So I've been to the cardiothoracic theatres in uh, Essex that I believe you know well. And all you know, up and down the country, met loads of doctors, loads of information, got huge amounts of experience, and continued to be a cardiac physiologist, which was great. And that's essentially why I left the NHS. It was to go to industry, but then there was something—a story that was told to me—that really changed what I was doing, and has led to, I guess, the reason we're having this podcast today is to talk about the new product that uh, we're creating 
for patients or for people with ICDs. Shall I share that story with you, how it came to be, I guess? Absolutely, yeah. So a friend of mine actually who's working in industry shared a story with me. Now, I've written up this story. It's online, and I'll share the story with you now. It's worth mentioning that I've changed details in the story to protect the people that are involved in the story. If they ever hear it and, you know, I don't want it to drag up any memories, I don't want it to upset anyone. So just bear in mind, details have been changed, but the sentiment of the story, you know, is still completely accurate. So I don't know if you've got one, Paul, but do you have a home monitor for your ICD? I do indeed, yeah. Boston Latitude. Perfect. So lots of people with ICDs have these home monitors. Now, what they enable us to do is basically check in on certain elements of your health and also the health of the device from the comfort of our office in the NHS or whichever whichever uh, you know cardiology center we're working at and we can look at reports so i mean how often do you do you have to do a download or does it do it automatically now paul yeah sure so your device that sits at home will every now and again talk to your device and send us a report now it's important to remember that that is a report it's not an alert And that report will sit in the cloud, you know, online waiting for a healthcare professional to go and access it and see what information it has for us, whether it's that your battery has still got ages left on it or whether it's your battery is running out and we need to get you in. So just give you a simple example. Now, the story that was told to me was a colleague, an ex-colleague of mine, had sat down to look at his reports for the afternoon. And as he logged in, he could see that there was a lady who had had a cardiac arrest and the device was trying to treat it. But it was one of those rare circumstances where the, the ICD was unsuccessful in its attempts to treat that patient. So my colleague picked up the telephone, frantically rang the house. The husband answered the phone. He's, you know, he said, obviously it's a sad story, but unfortunately it's, you know, some good may have come of it, fingers crossed. But this gentleman answered the phone. He said, you know, my wife's gone next door for a nap. My colleague, you know, urged him to go and check on her. And he did go and check on her and obviously found her unconscious. She'd had a cardiac arrest and, you know, he started CPR. So, I mean, I'm aware that I've given two very sad stories in this podcast. I'll try and keep it light. The, the lady, unfortunately, had died because the, you know, that chain of care that we talk about hadn't been delivered early enough. And, you know, it was sad. And upon hearing the story, I can get over two things. So firstly, in today's day and age, how was it not possible that that husband was alerted to the fact that his wife may have had a shot from their device? And the other thing was, which really saddened me, because as with anything, it's difficult not to empathise with people when you hear stories, you know, that are so emotional, was I I just couldn't help relating to myself. And I thought if it was me, I'd feel very upset and gutted that I hadn't had the opportunity to help my wife and, you know, or at least be there with her. And I couldn't get over that. Now, I'm guessing, I don't know that that, gentleman had those thoughts but that's what I couldn't help but em- empathize and I just thought to myself this shouldn't happen 
there must be something we can do. And then, you know, that light bulb moment, I just thought we can do something about it. If it doesn't exist, let's make sure that this scenario doesn't happen again. And so I set about starting up a company. Well, actually, the first thing I did was I looked to see if there was a solution out there. And there wasn't. And none of the manufacturers were creating a solution. And so I thought, okay, well, what is the solution? Had a few ideas, uh, thought about a few solutions, and then decided, well, okay, no one else is going to do it. I better start a business that tries to solve this problem. And that business is Lois Medical? Yep. So the name Lois Medical, people often ask, it actually was an acronym to start with, which was the Loved Ones Information Service. So just really focusing on that idea that if a person with an ICD does receive a shock from their device, that their nearest and dearest, the people that are statistically most likely to be near them, would be notified. So, I mean, we hadn't figured out how we could do it yet. But what we knew was if we were able to notify people that someone was having a shock, the worst case scenario, like the story I've given you, it would be an an extra opportunity, you know, potentially an extra shot at survival for that person. Because I believe you had an unwitnessed cardiac arrest. Am I right? That's right, yeah. And we know that if it's unwitnessed, the chance of survival drops. So, you know, the same can be said if your ICD is failing to treat your cardiac arrest, then if it's unwitnessed, then again, your chances of survival are going are gonna to drop. So what we're trying to do is almost make that cardiac arrest witnessed. So by letting the person next door know, I know your wife, it was almost serendipitous that she came up to talk to you at that time, maybe something, you know, compelled her to, but we're trying to make sure that that scenario plays out. So if somebody has a shock, somebody's alerted and they can go and check on them. Best case scenario, it might be that they've never had a shock before. They've just had one delivered. They're a bit shaken up. They feel fine and they want an arm around them and a cup of tea and, you know, chat with someone who cares about them, about the next steps, about what they should do. You know, they need to get driven to the hospital to get checked out or call their cardiac uh, center, you know, whatever that is, but a bit of emotional support. The other end of that spectrum, it could offer them another shot of survival. Mm-hmm. So, what? So, what have you come up with then? Oh, and just before we just before we go on to that, yeah, the, okay. you you mentioned about or the reason um, this person passed away is because their device didn't manage to treat their arrhythmia. So, what? I just want to put it in context for people who have got a device. I don't want them worrying unnecessarily that that's yeah. I think that's a good point. It's something that we're very mindful of and very conscious of is that this is this is where the idea came from for the device was this very rare scenario. But what we've created that I'll come on to talk about isn't really to solve that problem because it's very rare. It's really about building confidence and relieving anxiety. So we can come on about we can come on to how the device is going to do that for people, how it's going to help people go back to their normal life following uh, either a cardiac arrest or the implantation of an ICD. The idea stemmed from this very rare incident, and I wouldn't want people with ICDs worrying about that because it is very rare. 
We know that ICDs treat cardiac arrest with a huge level of success. The actual numbers, the percentage is slightly disputed, but you know, if I had an ICD, I'd feel very confident that if I was to have a cardiac arrest, it would treat it. So don't want anyone listening to this to worry because it's definitely the exception, uh, not the rule. I've seen it very few times in a seven-year career. So it can happen, but, you know, things can happen to all of us. And I wouldn't want anyone get getting worried about that because they may as well worry about something else or, you know, is knocked down by a bus <laughs> yeah exactly i mean i you know i don't know what the percentages are I, I could probably look into it to give something comparable to get your head around but look you know as we get older we've got a risk of having a stroke or you know we've got a risk of developing cancer or you know i don't spend my time worrying about it that risk exists and we do things that we can to mitigate that risk and, you know, in patients with ICDs, that risk does exist, but you've got an ICD. We've done everything we can to mitigate that risk. And so, you know, there's no point going around worrying it because it's extremely likely that if you do suffer another cardiac arrest, your device will recognize the rhythm and successfully treat it because that's what we always see in clinic. It was just this one example where it planted that little seed. And I thought, well, why don't we go, you know, do something about making sure that this this very rare situation doesn't happen again. But more importantly, it started me thinking about the psychological and emotional benefits that such a device can bring. And if I start to talk about those, it will become more understandable as to why this device has a place. Uh, Because really, if we were just creating it to notify loved ones that a person was having a cardiac arrest that was going untreated by their ICD, we wouldn't have a business model because it happens so rarely. Does that make sense? Yeah, 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 absolutely. So when we think about the emotion, what what started to dawn upon me was that I'd seen so many patients that had an ICD and they come in for their first consultation, their first clinic appointment after the implant. And more often than not, with a wife, with their husband, with their son, you know, with their dad, with a family member, friend, or a loved one. And the conversations were often about the device, but you'd also hear them talking about the dynamic of their relationship, the dynamic of their life and how it's changed. And a common thread was that following an ICD implant or a cardiac arrest or, you know, quite a traumatic event was that the loved one was also affected, but also people struggle to be on their own. So what I mean by that is that I'm sat in a room now recording this podcast with yourself and my wife is in the bedroom. I'm not worried about her. And that allows us to kind of live this carefree existence that we're all lucky enough to live until something happens to us. Following an ICD implant or, you know, this event, we were hearing stories of people not letting their loved one be out of their sight. So you know, watching them every minute, you know, these people not being able to have a healthy amount of time to themselves to read, you know, to be in their own space, that that valuable time, which actually helps us balance out as human beings. Uh, I don't know if you can comment on that, if that's something that you experience following your ICD. Absolutely. Uh, For probably at least six, nine months, my wife was in a state of hyper arousal always watching after me and like you say uh, and you're right I've seen that mentioned many times by partners that 
you know, it can lead to, I, I don't know if it is part of a some sort of PTSD as well, but there's, there's a, a lot of things going on there. I mean, I'm sure, you know, a lot of people and probably yourself included, you have to remember that they were going around their life, about their life, their work, you know, like I am now with almost without a care in the world. And then, you know, with this immediate event, this very, you know, acute event, suddenly their world is turned upside down. So it's not just the ICD being in situ, but, you know, they've, they've all of a sudden been told that they've got a heart problem. They've got to go through different diagnostic tests. They've got to, you know, you probably to a certain extent had to support your, your wife, even though you'd had the cardiac arrest because she would have gone through a very traumatic time. You know, you've lost your license, your driving license. There's implications at work. There's this huge, you know, supplementary trauma, I guess, to the, to the event far beyond the actual cardiac arrest and the physical. So, it's no wonder that people come out of it and all their behaviours have changed. Now, quite often these behaviours that change are with good intention, but not the most healthy because it doesn't allow people to go back to life as normal or as close to as normal as we can get it. You know, Lots of people no longer walk their dogs on their own because, you know, out of sight, they don't, you know, the wife's not sure what's happening to them or Conversely, your wife might not go out and walk the dogs because she doesn't want to leave you on your own. So we, essentially we get to this point where we're living on top of each other um, because of what's gone before and it's completely understandable. So the idea behind the device is that it can help with people returning to normal life by taking a little bit of stress, a little bit of worry away. So let's talk about what the device does. And it's very simple in practice in today's day and age. It's a wearable. So we picture it being worn on people's wrists, but on, on their wrists. But, you know, providing it's on your body somewhere, it's always on the lookout. So it will just be monitoring in a low power mode. If your ICD shocks you, then the device can recognize that shock. So different Things, I mean, have a different electrical signature. So, you know, your TV, your pacemaker, your kettle, your toaster, they all give off electromagnetic uh, interference or an electromagnetic signal. And all we've done really is we've just trained our wearable to recognise the signature, so the specific design and form of your ICD shock, so that it can recognise that electrical signal and discriminate, so rule out all the other electrical signals that go on in our lives. When one of those happens, it just lights up, can send a message to your phone and get this kind of cascade of notifications going out to anyone you've pre-selected. For instance, it might be your wife, Paul, that you'd put on there. So if your device goes off, you're wearing the wearable, she'll get a notification on her phone, a phone call, whatever she selects, where we will notify her that, you know, Paul's just had a shot from his device. Would you like to go and check on him? We can. We thought about giving some kind of background of support that goes into that, but we're, we're not there yet. But really just notifying her so that she can come and check on you. You know, likelihood is that you're sat up thinking, oh, what just happened? And she says, well, I got this notification that you may have had a shock and you can take it from there. But the idea is that, you know, Mrs. Swindell might be more likely to go downstairs, 
make a cup of tea, read her book, a bit more relaxed that she doesn't have to check on you every two minutes because if anything does happen and you receive a shot from your ICD, um, she'll be notified. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I can see it's a, it's a great idea and it's a, a worth it, very worthy idea because I, I think that could uh, definitely allay that anxiety and fears that you're you're talking about and that I've seen my wife experience and others experience regarding the device do you, do you think people would wear it for a long time then or would it just be until they're comfortable with their device well that's a really good question and i guess from a commercial if i put my commercial hat on it's a challenge we face as well so what we know from our kind of early market research and if anyone's helped with that listening thank you very much is that the benefits of this device is personal to the individual so it's normally got a story to it so we've had a few different examples things like we know a person whose father has a device but also has dementia so they're not always sure whether they've had a shock or not and it would just be a way for them to communicate that shock to their family and friends so that they they know whether he's had uh, any intervention or any arrhythmia we have another gentleman who speaks about you know, he feels fine, his wife feels good and confident, but he's got two young children and the wife isn't so worried about leaving him on his own, but is more worried about leaving him on his own with the children. And so they see a benefit because if anything were to happen to him, you know, help would be on the way to look after the children that could otherwise then be left on their own. So the the benefit is very individual to the person. So how long people are going to be wanting or wishing to wear this device or to benefit from really depends on the specific benefit that they feel. We would hypothesize that people are going to benefit from this device mostly close to the event. So if they've just had their ICD, they've just had their event and they're still in that very difficult um, time when they're really struggling to come to terms with everything that's happened, we would hypothesize that this is going to be the time that people will benefit the most. It will just help them feel a little bit confident in being alone and being on their own and trying to return to their normal habits. Beyond that, we know that people that have had their devices a long time, you know, really adapted to their life with their diagnosis, potentially could benefit from it, could want it, it could still help their loved one feel a bit more relaxed. But we know people are doing really well in this world without the device because they've just got used to everything and they're just comfortable and, you know, they're, they're living a carefree life again because they, they see their ICD as something that is there to help them. And so maybe if you've had it a bit longer, you benefit from this a little less. On that, we, we know that, I guess it's important to point out, this device and that one thing that it does isn't, where we're going to stop. So although we can alert people to the fact that somebody's had a shock from their ICD, we know the importance and we've seen the benefit of groups like your, like the one that you've set up in community. And we know the benefit of having information and support and guidance on rehabilitation, on exercise, and all these questions that people are uncertain of when they leave the hospital having just had this event. So beyond what this device does, we're off. We're also going to be building in 
you know, this idea of community, this idea of information where we will provide information through this device, through an app, through your phone that helps with those broader questions that you have when you're coming to terms with or rehabilitating yourself back into your life. So whether it's, you know, small videos on psychological well-being and coping mechanisms, whether it's mindfulness, whether it's little quotes from other people in the community that have you know, being where you are now, but they're 10 years into the future and they can say, I know exactly how you feel, but don't worry, this is going to get better. So just helping build that community, that network of support, that opportunity to respond to your diagnosis. Mm-hmm. That sounds a great idea to package it all up as a one sort of package. <laughs> yeah, and, and like I said, it's so rare that people, well, it's rare, I guess, that people have a shock from their device depending on their you know, reason for implants. So if we were just producing a device that did that one thing, chances are that it wouldn't be successful because people would wear it, not see any immediate benefit, forget about it and probably not charge it, leave it on the bedside table. So we understand that. So it's as much about, you know, us doing a fantastic job for people with ICDs and wanting to help because we do want to help. But it's also about making a good product because in order to help, it has to be something that people want to be in contact with each day, want to use each day. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just going back to the actual device and the product, I think you said it's a wearable. Is it something that could be incorporated into an existing device, for example, like a, an Apple Watch or a Fitbit? Could you be licensing your technology in the future? Yeah, so we, I mean, the answer is we could. And, you know, these these tech companies that you mentioned, Fitbit and Apple, they could probably achieve what we're trying to achieve much quicker. We have got a patent pending to protect against that, but we could certainly license it to them. The way it does detect the shock isn't already a sensor that exists in those, in your Fitbit, in your Apple Watch. So they would have to you know, add an additional sensor to the hardware. So it'd be something that probably they wouldn't be open to at this time. But on the flip side of that, what we can do and what we're planning to do is create a device that has the bells and whistles of those devices, things like the Fitbit, things like the Apple Watch. So, you know, a heart rate monitor, your average heart rate, your your steps, your calories, like all those nice things that we're interested in, especially when we might be trying to improve our health or be more mindful of our health. We will definitely be building that into our products so that, I mean, I'm not sure if we can even use this term, but internally, myself and the team just think about the Fitbit for people with ICDs. So that's the kind of proposition. People with ICDs aren't really getting a product that looks after them specifically. And that's what we want to create. We really want to provide something that's helpful to them. Because I'm sure people in your community will have an Apple Watch, will have a Fitbit because they like to monitor their health. And we're going to try and give them something that does that, but is really designed for their specific use case. So it's more relevant to them and they get more benefit from it.
Yeah, we know that risk real estate is uh, up for grabs at the moment. And I mean, I'm a person that likes to change my watch with my outfit. So, you know, I don't really want to give up some risk real estate. So we've got some challenges and we've got some, we've got some thinking to do around how are we going to make this the most attractive product for people? And I mean, I guess the good thing, but the sensible thing we're doing is we're really being guided by people with ICDs. So everything we've done so far, our initial market research, we've had people in to talk to us that have devices from day one um, about what's the benefit to them and to get them on board uh, so that we we, you know, we really make sure we're delivering a product that, that helps people with ICDs because that's what we set out to do. <laughs> yeah. quite accustomed to it so th- thanks to Ingrid for, for the idea of those but okay so when what's next with your device what stage are you at and is it something that people can see they're buying their partners next Christmas yeah so I mean I wish I could commit to that uh, but I can't so to give you a bit of background on us as well I know that we set up as a commercial entity we're a team of five now but we're five people all with other jobs, with other roles. You know, we're not Apple, we're not Fitbit, and we're, we're just trying to make this almost a passion project, but we're very compelled to do it. We've all got families, and we kind of really feel that burden of doing something good. So we're we're trying to move as quickly as we can uh, within our constraints, and we've, you know, been fortunate enough to get some investment from Innovate UK, so a government grant to help us get going. We've managed to get to the point, quite miraculously, I'd say, and you know, thanks to everyone else in the team, where we have a working prototype. So what we mean by that is that in all of our laboratory tests, and there is a video, I've, I don't know if you shared it, Paul, but it's on my website of us testing this on some pork loins, which isn't the most glamorous video in the world, but it's our best step to where we need to go, and that's testing to see whether this can sh- detect an ICD shock with as much success as we've seen in the laboratory testing in a human being. So we've got this working prototype and we've been fortunate enough to start to get the wheels in motion for some testing at Imperial College London. Uh, A doctor called Boon Lim has been very helpful there, helping us to get this off the ground. And we're actually hoping to hear back from the ethics committee this week to see if we've got approval. If we have, we've actually moved that to a point where we're ready to recruit patients for that trial immediately. So that could be, hopefully we'll be actually starting the trial by the end of January. The trial itself is us putting our wearable on people that have come in for an ICD who are actually undergoing a DFT. So I don't know, did you have a DFT? I can explain what that is quickly. I don't know what that is. So it's, I guess it's a bit of a hangover from how things used to be, It, especially the naming of it. It's a defibrillation threshold testing, if you like, which means that 
historically, when ICDs were first put in, they wanted some assurances that they were going to work. And I'm sure listeners to this may have had a DFT. So what they do is at the point of implant, they will induce a cardiac arrest in someone or induce ventricular fibrillation um, under very controlled circumstances and then watch, monitor the device to make sure, firstly, it recognizes that the cardiac arrest is happening and then charges up and successfully shocks the uh, arrhythmia. So it was a way of really seeing that the device that you've just implanted will be successful at doing what it's been implanted to do. So we don't always do them now, though, because lots of research was done to see whether doing a DFT at implant improved outcomes. And actually, it doesn't. In certain devices, it doesn't do that. So we don't normally do them, so that's probably why you haven't had one. Some It depends on the physician as well. It's all under controlled circumstances. But there are certain devices now that get implanted where we're more likely to do a DFT. And we're thinking about devices that don't have a lead directly into the heart. So subcutaneous ICDs. Is that something you've heard? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I know I, I don't have one, but I know plenty of people do these days. So we are going to be putting the lowest respond, which is the working title for our product, on the wrists of people that are having their ICD implanted and are going to have one of these tests. And we'll be able to see whether it successfully detects the shock given by the ICD. So it's our next step, really, in making sure that our device works on human beings who it's meant to help. Mm-hmm. No, that makes sense. Uh, I was I was wondering how many patients you're going to have to enrol to be able to find out uh, whether it works or not reliably, because I can imagine, well, shocks are quite rare. Yeah, you sound like the MHRA. <laughs> They've been asking us the same question. So we are recruiting 20 patients. It is a proof of concept uh, clinical trial. So it's important to remember that this is our trial to see if it works. It's not our trial to prove those supplementary benefits, the psychological benefits, the outcome benefits that hopefully we will we will be able to prove one day. This is to see if it works. Um, our next step beyond that is to make it into a product that people are going to want to wear because it, it works, but I mean, it's a bit ugly <laughs> at the moment, that's for sure. And we also want to build in all that technology that people would like to have, you know, on their wrist or some people would like to have. That's our next stage. Our CTO, a guy called Steve McAvoy, who's been really helpful, is cautious with our timelines. So he's always grounding me because I get carried away and, you know, keep thinking that we're going to have a a product ready next week, which is never going to happen. And it depends what type of product that we're we put out in the first instance. So is it something that just does something very simple so we can start the ball rolling or do we want a, you know, a better product um, that has all the bells and whistles uh, when we first come to market? We're keen to get it out there because we think people can benefit from it. And so we want people to have access to that benefit. And I definitely feel that burden because when we do our market research, people want it as such. And uh, you know, I can't 
I can't provide them with it just yet, but one day that time will come and I look forward to it immensely. I don't think it'll be Christmas, sadly. Mm-hmm. Maybe 2021. Maybe we could have something out at the end of 2020, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't bet on it. Mm-hmm. And so the, the, the cru- crucial thing from any consumer's point of view, you got any idea of what the price is like? <laughs> no, look, we have no idea about what the price is going to be. What I would say on that, though, is the price will be, will have to be at a point where people will feel comfortable buying it. So it's going to be affordable. That's for sure. We don't have a business model. And then the other thing to consider that we haven't decided upon yet is whether we have an upfront cost or whether it's a subscription basis because some people might want a subscription where you get additional support, additional benefits. It would, it would allow us to create better content for people, better information, better I mean, you know yourself from doing your podcast and your your group and your website that actually if there was some kind of subscription fee, you'd be able to probably produce a better service. It doesn't mean that we're going to do it because there's a lot of good work you can do, you know, value added. But, it, you know, we haven't decided on our business model. We haven't decided what it's going to look like. But what I would assure people of is that we set out to help people with ICDs and we set out to help their family and we set out to do a good thing. And so we're going to make sure that the price point and the product uh, allows us to still deliver on what we set out to achieve, which was to help people. So it won't be astronomical. It's not going to break the bank and we're going to make it affordable and we're going to make sure that the people get value for money and uh, it does good. Mm-hmm. No, that sounds very, very laudable and very sensible. And I think that the, the uh, subs- subscription model sounds probably more attractive from from a, my point of view anyway. I could see using it for, I don't know, however year, many years if it was on a subscription. Yeah, and we're gonna, we're, we will do market research. We're not going to sit around as a team of four guys and, you know, our brand, our brand lead is a lady called Teresa. We're not going to sit around as a group and decide on the price and what's right for people with ICDs. We're, we're going to ask yourself, we'll ask Sudden Cardiac Arrest UK. We're going to reach out to people and we're going to get your input. It's something that you know we put down in our culture early on, is that we want to be part of the ICD community. We don't want to be a manufacturer that sits outside of it and then sells a product into it. Well, that's good to hear. Well, I think it, you know, it, and you know, altruistically, it, it's good and it's right, and I believe in it. But also commercially, it makes sense as well. So it's a win-win situation, and yeah, we we definitely want to be part of the community. One other thing that we're keen to do as well is that I'm all too aware that people who have survived cardiac arrest or have an ICD quite often have trouble with their work, uh, their employment. They might have lost their license. So the other thing that we are keen to do is try and provide working opportunities as and when we can for people with ICDs. So, you know, if you've got, uh, I know you're a software, are you a software engineer? I'm sure you are. I was a software Software developer, developer. yeah. Yeah. So we know that there's a huge amount of ability within these communities that we could benefit from. So if you, you know, if you've got any experience in product design or if you've got any experience in software or app development uh, and you have an ICD, we'd love to hear from you. 
because we really want to have people in our team that do have ICDs, put our money where our, our mouth is, and like I say, really be part of the community. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's an excellent added bonus there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, do reach out uh, through the website, which I'm going to, shall I plug it quickly? Absolutely. So it's loismedical.com, which is L-O-I-S-M-E-D-I-C-A-L.com. You'll find the information on there. You can pre-register any interest in the product, but also if you just uh, fill in the contact form, if you do think you might be able to help us out with any of your skill set, that would be great to hear from you. Okay, that's brilliant. I'd just like to say thank you for sharing uh, your story and your your details about your product. I'd be looking with interest to to when it comes out and the details of the uh, clinical trial, and maybe we'll have you back again to uh, to talk about those things. So because you can definitely see a future for something like this. Thanks, Paul. That's great. And I really, you know, I'd love to come back on. I really appreciate you having me as a guest. You know, you've had some really great names on there. So, you know, really privileged to be on the show. So I appreciate that. And I just want to say, keep up the good work because I've been witness to the, you know, the benefits that come from social media groups and, you know, that network, that support network for people that have been through what you've been through. So it's really valuable. And I I just, uh, yeah, applaud your work and uh, commend what you're doing with the podcast and just keep going. I think it's a really valuable service for all your listeners and for the people that belong to your group. Thanks very much. All right, then. Thanks a lot. And I'll speak next time. Thank you. Cheers, Paul. Bye-bye. This concludes this episode of the Life After Cardiac Arrest podcast, and I'd love to know what you think. And you can do that via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or the website suddencardiacarrestuk.org. And you can find us by Googling Sudden Cardiac Arrest UK or the Life After Cardiac Arrest podcast. If you have found value in this or other episodes, please help spread the word by leaving a review on your podcast provider, such as Apple or wherever is convenient. And don't forget, if you want to know more about Life After Cardiac Arrest, check out our books, Life After Cardiac Arrest, on Amazon. Make sure you click subscribe, and I'll speak to you next time.